A Heavy Weight is intended for mature audiences. This series discusses topics that may be triggering to some listeners, such as suicide and drug use. Some names in this series have been changed to protect identities. Views expressed by guests on this series are their own and may not reflect my own. Resources and source materials can be found on our website, aheavyweight.com. Thank you so much for listening. Episode 7 of A Heavy Weight, a series reinvestigating the disappearance of Joseph Smedley. Last episode, we explored the possibility that Joseph may have been a confidential informant, but we hadn't yet reviewed his autopsy and toxicology reports. Joseph's family and friends hoped that the reports would hold some of the missing pieces that they were searching for. The toxicology and autopsy reports were given to the family about six weeks after Joseph's death. During that time, Vivian kept her brother's body in refrigeration, anticipating the need for a possible second autopsy. Given her rocky relationship with the Bloomington Police Department, she wanted to be prepared for whatever came next. I want to start this episode by reading you an account of the day Joseph's body was recovered. It was written by Eric Powell, a local funeral home director who was called to the scene that day. His summary reads, Called by dispatch to 3400 North Headley Road to a body found in Griffey Lake. When I arrived, I talked with Detective Joe Henry, who advised me that they suspected that the body in the lake could possibly be that of Joseph Smedley, a missing IU student. In the water with the body, was Ryan Davis and George Conley with the Monroe County dive team. The body was supine in the water, bloated and fully dressed. From the bridge, it was hard to tell if this person was Caucasian or African-American or even male or female, although their build appeared to be that of a male. The two divers placed the body in a body bag and brought it to the other side of the bridge, to the only place where there was access to the shore. They brought the bag to the edge of the water, where we placed a few holes in the bag to allow it to drain. We placed the bag in a Stokes basket, with the help of the fire department. We were able to get the body to the roadway. Once we got the body to the road, we were able to open the bag up and investigate further. The body appeared to be that of a black male fully dressed with sweatpants, shirt, and jacket. He also had a backpack still on his back, and it was secured around his waist with a knot in the front. We cut the front straps of the backpack, making sure not to disturb the knot. Upon removing the backpack, it contained several rocks, probably seven or eight, and a folder with some paperwork in it that had Joseph Smedley in it. The backpack also had other various items in it, the only thing of any significance being a prescription bottle of amphetamine that was empty, 
and the label was faded due to water. The name on it was not that of the deceased. At the scene, we were not able to find a wallet with any other ID. I had brought the van from the funeral home to make the removal due to it possibly being an hour or more before Darren Crumb being available. I made the removal to the funeral chapel to meet Darren and was followed there by Dana Cole, Joe Henry, and J.R. Holmes to further check for ID and to examine the contents of the backpack. Upon arrival to the funeral home, we were able to locate a wallet in Mr. Smedley's pants that had several IDs that had his name and photo. They also photographed the rocks and estimated that they weighed about 30 pounds. Darren Crum arrived and transported Mr. Smedley to Bedford for an autopsy with Dr. Jacoby on Saturday morning. Signed, Eric Powell. Before we unpack the details of the recovery of Joseph's body, I'd like to introduce two experts who will help us understand Joseph's autopsy and toxicology reports. First is Dr. Darren Wolf. Well, I am Dr. Darren Wolf. I am a board-certified forensic pathologist, and I have been doing forensic autopsies since um, 2015. And um, that is my primary expertise at this time. I'm also board certified in anatomical and clinical pathology, which is what people uh, normally think of as hospital pathology. And I work in Indiana. Next is Dr. Andrea Zafaris, a nationally renowned drowning expert. What I've been doing since 1988, roughly, is uh, working with dive teams on how to find bodies and evidence in the water. And then slowly over time, more and more people were asking us questions about cases, and I didn't have answers. So I started looking in the literature and really discovered there was not a great deal of research or information in the literature on how to work bodies found in water cases. And over the last, you know, probably 20 years at least, I've been teaching, and the teaching has been invaluable. Um, Law enforcement, forensic pathologists, prosecutors, you know, all different kinds of folk who would work with these cases and just hear, you know, learning about case after case after case. And I'd say we usually have at least 15 to 20 cases on our plate at any one time that people have asked us to look at. I've reviewed at least 3,500 to 4,500 cases since then. I began this series with this concluding opinion found on Joseph's autopsy report. Death in this 20-year-old man is attributed to drowning Alcohol and cannabinoid intoxication are interpreted as contributory to the cause of death. I wanted to understand how this determination was made, and the first step was to understand the role of a forensic pathologist. The forensic pathologist, the goal of the forensic pathologist or medical examiner, which those terms are essentially equal, um, the goal is to come up with a cause of death and a manner of death for every case. Now, the cause of death is defined as the physiological derangement that resulted in death. So I think the best way to um, do that is just to give examples. So like myocardial infarction or heart attack would be a cause of death. Um, An accident, multi uh, blunt force trauma due to a car accident would be a cause of death. A stroke would be a cause of death. 
um, you know, is some kind of uh, uh, like a gunshot wound, obviously, would be a cause of death. And now manner of death is different. Manner of death is more of a category. And there are so what we do is as forensic pathologists, we review all the information and do the autopsy. And then based on all the information and the autopsy results, then we can put it in a category. And there are five categories, um, accident, uh, and that's obviously uh, self-explanatory, suicide, homicide, natural deaths. And then the fifth category is called undetermined. And that's when um, with all the information in, you can't make a specific call on the manner of death. In Joseph's case, his cause of death was ruled drowning, and his manner of death was determined to be suicide. Dr. Wolf listed the five categories for manner of death, accident, suicide, homicide, natural death, and undetermined. Given the unusual circumstances in Joseph's case, I wanted to know what forensic pathologists look for when making a death by suicide determination. So what helps make a determination of suicide is all of the circumstantial information around the case. Okay, so we do the autopsy and we have a good idea maybe of why they died. And then what we do is we look at things like um, interviews or witness interviews with family, friends. We look at very important things like um, text messages, things they were saying to their friends, searches perhaps they were doing on their uh, computer, uh, notes that are left. Um, you know, a lot of people think that when suicide uh, occurs, uh, there's always a note and that's, that is a slam dunk. But actually a note is a rarity in suicide. Uh, you don't see it nearly as often as no note. But uh, things like, you know, giving away possessions or, um, you know, that sort of thing would give an, an idea about the mental state of the patient or the decedent and were they considering uh, taking their own life? With the circumstantial evidence that is known to us, specifically the note found in Joseph's room and the strange text to Vivian, it's not surprising that law enforcement concluded that Joseph died by suicide. But how can we be sure that the note and text were truly written and sent by Joseph? Could there be more to the story? Besides the questionable note and text, what other circumstantial evidence is there to support death by suicide? Joseph's family does not recall ever being interviewed about his mental state, and most of his closest friends, including Jess, weren't interviewed at all. And there are two major pieces of circumstantial evidence that need clarification. The first being what happened to Joseph's cell phone. I asked Vivian what she'd been told about her brother's cell phone since his disappearance. So that's been really strange because I keep hearing like a lot of different things. Because um, at first, when I had talked to the police department, they said they had never recovered it. Well, then I heard that a dive team recovered it. My dad got involved later on and had like a list of questions that he had sent to the Bloomington Police Department for them to answer. They barely answered like a third of them. And the ones that they did didn't make sense. They said a dive team recovered the phone. But then and now I'm also hearing later that his phone was found like in the woods somewhere. So that's just really strange to me. Like it's very inconsistent. 
The official story is that Joseph's cell phone was recovered by the dive team shortly after his body, and the phone allegedly contained over 2,000 messages. But Joseph's family was never given access to the phone, even after his case closed. It's left them with so many questions. Could some of the messages speak to Joseph's mental state when he vanished? Could there be clues within the messages that might allude to foul play? Could they hold some piece of information that would help illuminate how and why Joseph ended up at Griffey Lake? The second major piece of uncertain evidence is the note found by Joseph's roommates. His family requested it be submitted for handwriting analysis to determine if it was, in fact, written by Joseph. Despite law enforcement collecting many samples of handwriting from the family for comparison, no analysis was ever completed, nor was it compared to his roommate's handwriting to rule out the possibility that one of them could have written it. As Vivian pointed out, the only reason she knew that the cell phone had been recovered was because of a series of questions that her father sent to law enforcement. In fact, most of the information deduced from these questions is due in part to Dr. Zafaris, our drowning expert. She was originally contacted about Joseph's case back in 2015, when Joseph's father, Joe Sr., became the main point of contact. Joe Sr.'s wife at the time, Linda, a former police sergeant, contacted Dr. Zafaris to see if she might be able to help with Joseph's case by helping them come up with a list of questions to ask law enforcement. Many of the questions went unanswered or were simply answered with the word coroner. Here are some of the questions, along with the answers provided to the family. Question 1. Are family members going to be interviewed? How did the coroner reach a conclusion of suicide without interviewing family members to obtain a history of Joseph? Answer, coroner. Question 3. At what depth was his body recovered? Answer, 6 to 8 feet. No substantiating evidence was provided. Question 14. What kind of search was performed to locate the cell phone? Was it just observed, or was there a slow, methodical hand search of the area? If the latter, what size area was searched, and what specific search techniques were used? Can we please see the search paperwork? Answer. Dive team used two pattern searches. There is a sketch. Jack Stay Search, Doc Search, PPCS. No search paperwork was provided. Question 21. How do you think he arrived at the location where he was found? If there were 60 pounds of weight in his backpack, then it does not seem reasonable that he would have floated or moved to the recovery location from a different location post-mortem. He had a low BMI and thus was negatively buoyant without any added weight. Answer, coroner. Question 22. What does his body position and posture suggest to you regarding the cause and manner of death? Answer, coroner. Question 24. Were there any photographs of his eyes on the scene to see if there were any signs of drying artifact, corneal clouding, or tache noir? If yes to both questions, then were his eyes submerged when he was recovered? 
if yes, then his body would have had to have been placed there post-mortem. Unless the water level dropped enough at some point to have exposed his eyes to air for more than an hour prior to his recovery. Answer. Coroner. Eyes were submerged when recovered. Question 27. Did a forensic document examiner perform a handwriting analysis on the note found by Joseph's roommates in their shared apartment to determine authorship of the note? Were handwriting samples taken from his roommates and fraternity brothers he was last seen with to compare to the handwritten note that was discovered in Joseph's apartment? Answer, no. Question 28. Who weighed the bricks found in the backpack? What was the weight? Answer, BPD evidence technician, 66 pounds. Question 29. If Joseph was last seen by his roommates around 11.30 p.m., and after that he was last seen by his fraternity brothers downtown Bloomington, how is it possible for him to send a message to his sister around 4 a.m. from the downtown area and travel to the area along Old State Highway 37, which is where cell phone records indicate his last location, and yet the scent-tracking dogs could not find his path? Answer. Unclear. We were not aware that anyone saw him downtown. No canine search was done by BPD. Question 30. Did the roommates discover the handwritten letter immediately after they saw him at 11.30 p.m.? Did any of the roommates attempt to contact him after reading this letter? Answer. No. Note was discovered the following afternoon or evening. No, they stated they thought it was a joke. Question 31. What was Joseph doing before he left his apartment? Answer. Watching a movie, then a baseball game. No information after 11.30 p.m. All roommates went to bed. Question 32. Have any type of law enforcement officers who participated in this case received any type of specialized training on drowning death investigations? Answer, no. Question 33. Did Joseph have any prior communication or involvement with Indiana University or Bloomington Police Department? Answer, traffic stop in September 2014. IUPD for contacts. The questions prepared by Dr. Zafaris were based on her many years of experience. It's important to understand why Dr. Zafaris asked these specific questions, and we still have to go over Joseph's autopsy report. But before we can do that, it's very important to point out that water deaths are extraordinarily hard to decipher, which is what makes Joseph's case even more difficult to understand. And even in clear death-by-suicide cases, suicide by drowning is incredibly rare. Since there isn't much research about bodies found in water, Dr. Zafaris' expertise is widely sought after, especially by families like the Smedleys. And even though it's been about six years since she was first contacted by the family, she remembers them well. You know, I get contacted by families, and very often it's, 
they just can't accept the death. But this was a family, the mother, uh, I think Linda Smedley, was very yes. reasonable, very intelligent, uh, very open and willing to discuss things as unbiasedly as possible. So when I have a family like that, <clears throat> I'm willing to put in the time. You know, I did this all pro bono. One of the first things Dr. Zafaris asked me about in our interview was whether or not the police had ever released the autopsy photos or scene photos. To this day, the photos have not been shared, despite being a crucial missing piece in this case. This is a recurring issue that Dr. Zafaris has noticed as tensions between law enforcement and victims' families have escalated in recent years. Yeah, you know, and the last few years, we've just been so frustrated with um, investigative agencies not understanding what they're doing to families. And if they just sometimes were more open and forthright, everything would be okay. Even without seeing photographs of the scene, both Dr. Zafaris and Dr. Wolf agreed that the autopsy was reasonable. You know, at least a full standard autopsy. You know, it's, it, what they did is exactly what I would have expected them to do. Mm-hmm. They did do microscopic findings, which is above and beyond what we often see. So they did, you know, they did not spare that expense. They did a full tox screen, an expanded tox screen uh, in terms of when they found the body. They did bag the body in the water, so that's good. And very often bodies are dragged to shore and then bagged when they get on land, so they did a nice job of bagging the body in the water. Dr. Zafaris walked me through the short case summary by Eric Powell that I read at the beginning of this episode, as well as the autopsy report. She highlighted the things that law enforcement did well, but still had many unanswered questions about the state of Joseph's body when it was found. One thing forensic pathologists look for in death-by-drowning cases are the weights of the lungs, because they take in water as someone begins to drown. You know, his lungs are um, normal weight. Well, first of all, you know, drowning is a diagnosis of exclusion. You know, there's no accepted medical test to prove whether someone drowned or not. When the autopsy says... Um, you know, the, 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 the findings were consistent with drowning. The histology does show that there is some pulmonary edema. His lungs are normal weight, but the more decomposed a body is, the lighter the lung weights. There was actually a study done in New York City where they looked at 123 bodies found in open water, and the non, uh, non-decomposed bodies were compared to the decomposed bodies, and 51% of the decomposed bodies had normal weights, whereas only, I think it was about 20% of the fresh bodies had normal weights. So his lung weights being normal are not a sign that it wasn't a drowning. So it's just, I think it's just because he was decomposed, but they did the histology and there was edema. So he could say that the, you know, the, the findings were consistent with drowning, but there, you know, there weren't really a lot of findings. So some of the questions I had written down are, I wish we could see the rocks. Do we know if that environment, has anyone been to that environment to see where the rocks possibly are from? The details around the rocks are a looming question in Joseph's case. And without seeing photographs, we just can't be sure of what they look like. All we know is that at times they're referred to as bricks and other times they're referred to as large rocks. Another question Dr. Zavaris had 
was whether the backpack found strapped to Joseph was strapped to his chest or to his back. In the summary from funeral director Eric Powell, he stated that the backpack was strapped to Joseph's back, secured with a knot around his waist. He mentions that there were seven or eight rocks in the backpack, and concludes his summary by stating that the rocks were photographed with an estimated weight of 30 pounds. I find these details to be troublesome, particularly the detail that Joseph's bag was strapped tightly to his back, because Joseph's autopsy report says this, A backpack was strapped tightly around the chest, containing an estimated 30 pounds of large rocks, writing instruments, and charging cords. This is the first of several conflicting reports regarding the position of Joseph's backpack on his body. This became a critical detail, as you will soon see, especially when we go over Joseph's second autopsy. Joseph's family distinctly recalls being told that the backpack was strapped to his chest, not his back. And that's how Dr. Zafaris remembers it, too. That's what I, that's what I remembered, but then I was reading something about it being on his back. I remembered chest. This isn't the only discrepancy. A few sentences later, Joseph's autopsy report reads, History of being found floating with a tightly strapped backpack containing approximately 30 pounds of large rocks. But in the autopsy report, 30 pounds is crossed out and 30 kg is handwritten in below. 30 kilograms is about 66 pounds of rock, and that is a substantial difference. According to Eric Powell, there are only seven or eight rocks in the bag. If there were eight rocks present, then each would weigh roughly eight and a quarter pounds. And if there were only seven rocks, then each would weigh about nine and a half pounds. Both the backpack's location on Joseph's body and the details about the rocks are essential to understanding Joseph's cause and manner of death. But without seeing the rocks, we can't understand where they may have come from. And this is something that both Dr. Wolf and Dr. Safaris pondered. You know, it is the rock situation. So we had 30 pounds and then we had somebody wrote 30 kilograms on the report, which comes out to about 67 pounds uh, of rock, which is probably about half his body weight. One thing to me, and I don't know if you have this answer, is did anyone determine where those rocks came from? I've been to the location where Joseph's body was recovered many times, and there just aren't many large rocks in that area. There are some graveled areas with smaller stones, but I couldn't find a single rock or brick that weighed close to eight or nine pounds, and certainly not seven or eight of them. Which weighed about eight or nine or ten pounds each, so those are fairly big rocks. Um, Now, I have never personally asked a geologist uh, to consult on one of my cases, but I would be interested to see what a geologist would say about those rocks, if they exist, and say, did these rocks come from the area? Did these rocks come from somewhere else? Uh, Were they, like you said, some type of brick, like a man-made decorative rock, or is it a a rock from the shoreline? So uh, I think that's one of the things that jumped out to me was the rock situation. And here's why this is so important. If you found that the rocks were uh, at the scene, it may give an indication that, um, you know, he went there with the purpose of putting those rocks in his backpack and, you know, going into the water. 
Um, but if the rocks are, are not identifiable to that area, that would be a little more um, interest to me, I think, in terms of considering those foul play situations. And the placement of the backpack on his body is also critical in determining whether or not foul play may have been involved. Okay, so the, the Eric Powell report says he also had a backpack still on his back and it was secured around his waist with a knot in the front. Because okay. the family had told me it was on the front. It makes sense that the family told Dr. Zafaris that Joseph's backpack was found on his chest, since that's what was in the autopsy report. But Eric Powell's report also notes that Joseph was found floating supine, meaning face up, which Andrea explains is an incredibly rare position for a body found in water. The report says that he was found face up, and that is almost almost <laughs> less than nine, less than five percent of bodies are found face up on the surface. So for him to have been face up, it really needed to be that the backpack was on the back. All of these questions could easily be cleared up by law enforcement. I'm hopeful that someone from the Bloomington Police Department may listen to this podcast and be able to help provide this information. Because without it, we can't know for certain which details are correct. There are still more unanswered questions raised by the summary from Eric Powell, the autopsy report, and the toxicology report. For example, the empty pill bottle from Eric Powell's report. He noted this. The backpack also had other various items in it, the only thing of any significance being a prescription bottle of amphetamine that was empty, but the label was faded due to the water. The name on it was not that of the deceased. The autopsy report also claims that suspicions were raised about illegal drug use. And there were rumors from friends that perhaps Joseph made DMT or may have been involved in other illicit, dangerous activities. We also heard from Vivian and Joe Sr. that IUPD detectives made it known that Joseph was somehow involved with drugs. We know that Joseph's only previous interaction with IUPD was when he was stopped for a traffic violation in 2014. Is it possible that it was more than just a traffic violation? Did IUPD find something during that traffic stop? These clues could suggest that Joseph may have been involved in something that got him in trouble, and may also point towards the theory that Joseph may have been a CI. While there's not enough concrete evidence to confirm this, there's certainly enough there to suggest the possibility. Joseph's toxicology report notes the following. Amphetamines, negative. Barbiturates, negative. Cannabinoids, positive. THC, positive. Cocaine, negative. Fentanyl, negative. Opiates, negative. Alcohol, methanol, negative. Alcohol, ethanol, positive. Antihistamines, positive. DMT, none detected. Please note, decomposed specimen. Like the autopsy report, Joseph's toxicology report is hard to decipher because he'd been in the water for roughly five days before his body was recovered. 
his ethanol level was noted as 0.234%. But what does that mean in a decomposing body? While it isn't the same as blood alcohol content, it does seem reasonable to assume that Joseph was intoxicated at the time of his death. He also tested positive for THC and an antihistamine in his system. So what does that combination tell us? So this toxicology is a little bit difficult to interpret. First of all, let's talk about the alcohol percentage. This came out to be 0.234%. Now, if that were in blood, that would be a very significant intoxication. 0.234% would be uh, about three times the legal limit in the state of Indiana. And that level uh, can produce, you know, stupor, confusion. They might even need uh, assistance in walking and even blackout at that level. Now, the reason why there's an asterisk on this particular one is that this wasn't blood. This was what's called pleural cavity fluid. And so let me explain that. Um, when the body decomposes, um, the cells break down and over time, fl this fluid collects in the body cavities. Um, and it is just usually referred to as decomposition fluid. Because uh, Mr. Smedley did not have any blood or other fluids to send, then that is the fluid that, that was sent. And that's totally in line with practice to do that. Um, the other option would have been to send uh, a tissue like liver or spleen. But in this case, decomposition fluid was sent. But we have to remember that decomposition fluid is not blood. So when you see 0.234%, you can't really call that a blood alcohol, okay? But it is elevated. Um, I would expect that there, there to have been some intoxication here. But... On the other hand, I did talk to some toxicologists about using this kind of fluid and this kind of result, and they said that it would be uninterpretable. So you can't look at 0.234% in a plural decomposition fluid and then make an assumption about the level of intoxication of this person. Keep in mind that alcohol and cannabinoid intoxication were considered contributory to his cause of death. Um, it's pretty hard to interpret those results. I mean, in this case, I would call it qualitative almost. I mean, we do have a number on the toxicology report, but when you consider the fluid that's used, uh, you can't really make an assumption about level of intoxication or the chronicity of use with the levels of THC and then the metabolite of THC that was found. So I would just say, if it were me, I would probably say these compounds are present indicating use but I can't really say uh, what kind of, um, you know, intoxication might have been produced from those levels. Well, I was going to mention with regards to ethanol, we have to remember that um, with decomposition, we have bacterial growth and with bacterial growth, we, we can actually produce ethanol. So when I have a decomposed body that I do an autopsy on and I send toxicology, ethanol will almost always be present, but it's in very small amounts. So we're talking like a tenth of the amount that's here. So based on that, I would say based on experience, um, this probably does represent an intoxicating level of ethanol, but I can't really say what it was because we don't have blood. The toxicology report also tested for DMT, which is pretty unusual. 
So DMT is a hallucinogenic compound, which is found in plants. Um, it's the active ingredient in ayahuasca, uh, which people may be familiar with. That is not a standard test. That would require a special request to then put that order in with the toxicology company to run that test. So we don't, we don't put in special orders for things unless we have good suspicion for it. So in other words, if we found a concrete indication that that uh, compound may have been ingested. So let's say a person bought a certain drug or mentioned taking a certain drug that is not on the standard panel, then we would order that drug. So I had to assume when I saw DMT on the autopsy, uh, on the toxicology report rather, that there was some suggestion that Mr. Spendley may have used that at some point and they wanted to see if there was some hallucinogenic compound in his system which may have produced unusual behavior. I'll say that in all my autopsies since 2015, I've never ordered it once, so not common. It's also important to consider that suicide by drowning is extremely uncommon. Yes, it's very unusual. Suicide by uh, drowning is... Uh, a very unusual, you know, cause and manner of death. Um, I think I've had maybe one case um, in my career, uh, but that speaks to the the rarity of that mode. It's just such a hard case. It's one of those cases you get like once a year, once every couple of years that just drives you nuts because there's enough question marks to make you think about what, if there's something different that happened that we're missing. With so many missing pieces and unclear details, Joseph's case remains a mystery. I can't help but wonder if there's anything in Joseph's reports that might shine more light on what happened to him that night. And that's where we'll pick up on Episode 8 of A Heavy Weight. That makes no sense. That would not be consistent with what I'm seeing in other cases. I really want people to see just how easy it is to cover things up and just how difficult the justice system really is. Produced and hosted by me, Stacy Brodovsky. Edited and engineered by Joseph Caldwell. Additional editing, music, and sound design by Mike Brodovsky. <laughs> <laughs>